Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi chapter 2. Our text this morning will be verses 10 through 16. So as you're finding your place there, let's stand together. We're going to read that short passage and then as is our custom, we'll pray and ask the Lord to, to bless us as we consider His Word this morning. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another? profaning the covenant of our fathers. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did He not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who hates and divorces, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Let's pray. Father, we, we stand before you this morning as people in desperate need of your Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds to understand the Scriptures. We need your Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts to help us to see how badly we need you, how badly we need your Word. We pray, Lord, that you would give that help, that your Holy Spirit would come to our aid. Pray boldly for this because of the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross and how He has reconciled us to You. We look forward, Father, to to what You will do in this hour. We praise You for Your Word. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Human beings are relational creatures. It's possible that many of us in this room, if we were to introduce ourselves to someone else, we would do so not by appealing to our vocation or where we went to school, but we might, we might tell someone about who we are related to. I'm married to so-and-so. I'm the son of this person. I am the father of that person or the sister of, of this person. Relationships are such a huge part of, of the, the human experience. They are the, the context in which we experience so much joy and the majority of the pain that we experience as human beings. Our relationships are a forum for the expression of great strength and perhaps the greatest forum for the expression of our fallenness. We, we are relational to our core. and we, we might wonder, why is this? Why is it that human beings are, are so bound to one another in relationships? The Bible would tell us that we are relational creatures because we have a relational creator. God is and always has been a relational God. Even before He created us, He existed from eternity past as the triune God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those, those names 
speak of relationship. Father, Son, Spirit. And from eternity past, they enjoyed perfect fellowship with one another. And when God created the world, He did so to create a relationship with the pinnacle of His, of His creation, man. And we find in, in the Old Testament book of, of Genesis, God walking in the garden with Adam. God as Adam's lawgiver, Adam as God's representative in the creation. And yet not very far into that storyline, Adam rebelled against God and he plunged all of mankind into darkness. He lost that relationship with God, not just for himself, but for everyone who would come after him. And so the the story of the gospel that we find throughout the scriptures is the story of, of God graciously and at great expense to himself, giving himself back to man. And that, that work of giving himself back to us in a relationship, that was quite an undertaking. And that God was willing to do what he did is evidence of how com- committed he is to relationship. And not just to relationship, but to showing himself faithful in relationships. Because our sin, our fallenness, certainly did not make it an easy thing to do. Man's rebellion against God required an ultimate punishment, eternal separation from God. And so the Bible presents us with this situation. How is it that that God can renew his relationship with man, give himself back to man, when God's own holiness requires an infinite punishment for man's rebellion? How can that ever work? How can God give himself back to man? Well, the, the brilliance of the gospel is that God gives himself back at great personal cost. He gives his own son to stand as a substitute for sinners. Jesus Christ came to the earth. He took on human flesh, lived perfectly in obedience under the law of God, obeying on man's behalf. He was delivered up to death on the cross or the sins of men being punished on man's behalf. So Jesus died on the cross, and God the Father vindicated him three days later by raising him from the dead. The Bible teaches that through that vicarious life and death of Jesus, God forgives sinners, gives them life in Christ, and all those who repent and trust in him, they receive that gift and they have God back. They have a relationship with Creator and Father God. Now, all of that that God has done for us in Christ was in faithfulness to promises made. We find promises made to us going all the way back to Genesis 3 and reiterated in Genesis 12 and 15 and 17 and and so on. God makes promises. He keeps them. And He keeps them in Christ such that now we have a relationship with Him. And now that He has given Himself back to us, He calls us once again to image His character. And part of that character is His faithfulness in relationship. The Holy Spirit, is, as He's working to conform us into the image of Christ, one aspect of God's character that He is zealous to reveal in us is the faithfulness of God. Commitment to relationships. Because that is what God is. Yet we, we find in the Old Testament, as today, there, there's this temptation to conceive of God as a God who seeks only just outward, peripheral worship, not real relationship. And, and as such, there's a tendency to minimize the importance of, of faithfulness in relationships. I mean, a- after all, if, if we are right that all God wants is our outward ritual, and it can't be all that big of a deal for us to fudge here and there on these, these other issues. And if we read Malachi closely, it, it certainly seems that that is what was happening in the people of Judah. They were engaged in the kind of worship that we might expect to be given to a false god. That is, empty, ritualistic offerings given to a god who cares nothing about relationship. The people had successfully 
compartmentalized their their worship of God. They they were they were giving him this this one part of their life, but they were withholding much bigger things. It's likely that they were doing this all over their lives, but the one area of life that the prophet focuses on in this passage is the area of relationships. And Malachi would communicate to us this morning this. God is a covenant-keeping God. That is, He's a faithful God. And so, we cannot worship Him rightly. We cannot honor Him if our lives are characterized by covenant-breaking and faithlessness. I'll say that again. God is a covenant-keeping God. That is, He's a faithful God. And so we cannot rightly worship Him. We can't honor Him if our lives are are characterized by covenant-breaking and faithlessness. Malachi gives us that message. He builds it very carefully, and he starts with a first building block, which is this idea that God is a covenantal God. That's the first. That's the first point in your notes. God is a covenantal God. Look with me, beginning at verse ten again. We find a couple of questions. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? When when God when God brought the Israelites out of Egypt, He became a father to them, and they became a firstborn son. To him, he uses that exact language in, in Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. God became their father. They became a firstborn son to him. And of course, all of that prefigures the coming of Christ and the church, all of us becoming God's sons and daughters in Christ. This is covenant language. We all have one father, God. When God gave Jesus to save us and bring us back to him, He did this extraordinary thing of adopting us into his family. He became our father. And we find Jesus praying this outrageous thing in in John 17, just before his arrest, that the father would allow all of us to enjoy oneness with the father and the son that they enjoyed with one another from eternity past. That is an outrageous prayer. What's more outrageous is that God said yes because we find in places like 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul teaching that the church is in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, as a, as a covenantal God, He joins us to Himself. That's a sub-point in your notes. As a covenantal God, He joins us to Himself. Did you know that's the whole point of the Gospel? We tend to conceive of the gospel as everything that God has done to save us from our sins and to save us from the wrath to come. And raise your hand if you're thankful that God saved us from our sins and from the wrath to come. Boy, glad for that. That is a means to an end, though. All right? Our being saved from sin and hell was a necessary step to our being brought back to God. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered once for sins. Yes, He suffered. He saved us from our sins. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That He might bring us back to God. See, salvation from sin is penultimate. Relationship with God, ultimate. Why is that? Why is relationship with God the ultimate thing? Because that's the character of God. He's a covenantal God. And so he joins us to himself. Such a, such a kind and gracious thing to do. But he doesn't just join us to himself, he joins us to one another. As a covenantal God, he joins us to one another. Have we not all one Father? When God made a covenant with Israel, He didn't just join himself to each individual in Israel, but he joined all of those individuals together. And we find Paul teaching the same thing about the church in Ephesians chapter 2. When when Christ reconciled us to God, he reconciled us to one another as well. And he placed us in one body with Christ as our head. And that's why Paul is able to say a couple of chapters later in Ephesians chapter 4 that we are members of one another. In the, in the new covenant, we're joined to Christ and we're joined to one another. God does a similar thing in the institution of marriage. And Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 5 
that marriage is intended to be a picture of covenantal faithfulness between, between Christ and the church. So in both of these relationships, the, the, the body of Christ, the church, and in the marriage of, of a woman and a man, the faithfulness of God is intended to be depicted to the creation. And we find both of those things in this passage. It's going to be obvious as we, as we proceed. God's a relational God. He's a covenantal God. And so he joins us to himself and he joins us to one another. Now, if that's the kind of God that we have, a relational God who's faithful in his relationships, then what would it look like for us to honor him fully? Well, it should be clear, right? We, we, we would honor him by imaging him with our lives. That is, we would be faithful in all our relationships as he is faithful in his. And that leads us to a major principle this morning, which is that faithfulness to God requires faithfulness to one another. Faithfulness to God requires faithfulness to one another. Let's go back to verse 10 again. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Now we we get a whiff of something really striking here. The people have in some way been faithless to one another on a horizontal plane and therefore have violated a horizontal relationship, their relationship with God. They have violated their responsibility to God as their creator and father. He is our creator. He's our father. So why have we been faithless to one another, he asks. At this point in the text, we don't know exactly how they have violated their relationship with one another. We don't know how they've been faithless to each other. But what is clear is that he has linked faithfulness to God with faithfulness to one another. As worshipers imaging the character of a faithful God, we are expected not only to be faithful to him, worship him alone, be faithful to him alone, but we are expected to be faithful in all of our relationships. God connects those two things. In fact, if we consult the whole counsel of God, it would seem almost impossible to separate those two commitments, being faithful to God from being faithful to one another. Jesus was asked in Matthew 22, what's the greatest commandment? What's the one great commandment? And Jesus said to that guy, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. A second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and prophets. They go together. And the Apostle John, in his first epistle, he takes those two things and he, he, he associates them so intimately. You might think that he's intermingling them. First, first John 3.17 If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, in other words, if anybody doesn't love his brother, how does God's love abide in him? Later in that same epistle, 1 John 4.20, the apostle writes, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. That is not possible. Likewise, we find elsewhere in the New Testament, Paul's writings, Galatians chapter 6, he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. In other words, honor the Lord Jesus by looking after one another. In other words, we cannot be faithful to God if we're not faithful to one another. We, we, we serve Him by serving each other because God is a relational, covenant-keeping God. He requires us to image that in Him. We are to be faithful to one another, covenant keepers. And it, it, it appears that the people of Judah were trying to compartmentalize faithfulness, holding that they, they could be faithful to God while being unfaithful to one another. And Malachi is saying here, nah, that doesn't work. You can't do that. God is faithful. We are called to worship Him in faithfulness. That means imaging Him in Every part of our lives. Now, what exactly have these people done? They've done something to violate horizontal relationships. What is it they've done? We find a couple of things in this text. Look with me at verse 11. Judah has been faithless. An abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, 
and has married the daughter of a foreign god. He's married the daughter of a foreign god. In other words, what he's saying is Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord by marrying the daughter of a foreign god. What does it mean to marry the daughter of a foreign god? Well, think about the language that Malachi has already used. He has called us children of God, or God is our father. So to marry the daughter of a foreign god is to marry somebody who worships another god. In other words, the people have been violating the covenant by intermarrying with pagans, which has been a no-no since Exodus 34, and God's reiterated that over and over ever since. Now, why would they do that? Why, why would they intermarry with these, with these pagans? We might think, just practically speaking, that, that maybe it's for political and economic reasons. After, after the people returned from exile, they, the people of Judah, they, they were just this small, weak territory of the Persian Empire, surrounded by all these more powerful peoples, and it was just a, a custom of, of the ancient Near East that intermarriage is just an attractive way to improve yourself politically and economically. And so we might say well, that's what it was. And there's cer- certainly there's some truth to that. If we drill deeper into the human heart, we would have to say it's just because they had hearts prone to stray. And the gods of these other peoples allowed them to do things that are fun to hearts prone to stray. That's what was going on. They, they didn't love God. They didn't trust God. And so we would naturally understand this intermarrying thing to be unfaithfulness to God. I mean, all, all of the language here sounds like that. It points in that direction. Use the word faithless, abomination, profaning the sanctuary. All of that smacks of offense against God. And certainly they have offended God, not denying that. But what's interesting is that Malachi has characterized that intermarriage as faithlessness to one another. Now, in what sense is that the case? In, in this sense, they have been faithless to one another in they, that they have put the purity of the community in jeopardy in order to please themselves. They put the purity of the community in jeopardy in order to please themselves. They were willing to bring pagan worship into their own lives, discounting what that would mean for the rest of the people of God. And listen, the testimony of the Old Testament and the New is that you and I cannot confine the effects of our sin to our own backyard. does not work. Now, Most people, most people don't think about the detrimental effect of their idolatry on the people around them especially in the church. We just don't think that way. Perhaps on our best days, we think about the effect of our idolatry on ourselves. We, cal- we, you know, we, 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 we calculate the cost of going down this road or that road. I know the Lord doesn't want me to do this. I think about it. The Lord will forgive me. It's going to be worth it. And I go that way. I think about my idolatry in terms of the effect that it's going to have on me. Don't typically think about the effect that it's going to have on other people. And why do we do that? Because we're so inherently self-centered. But listen, when I, when I decide that I'm, I'm going to give God a part of my life, but I'm going to withhold this other part of my life, I am not the only one affected by that. It is impossible for me to be the only one affected. The church is an organism. And my spiritual health is designed by God to be a benefit, a blessing to the other believers around me. I I am here in this church, you're here in this church, to stir others up to love for Jesus Christ and to good works in His name. And so our respective vocations, as it were, is to help build up the body of Christ by helping others love Jesus more. Our vocation is not primarily to look after our own selves. When I give part of myself to another God in some way or another, whether that's my intermarriage or, or giving myself to an addiction of some kind, in a sense, I'm siphoning off kingdom re- resources in the form of my own spiritual health that could be better used to help my brothers and sisters in Christ. And here's something to keep in mind. It's not just that I'm not going to be there to help them. 
It's that I have now become a negative influence in their lives. I'm not just withholding help. I'm now bringing harm. My idolatry is going to cost them. I have a, I have a, a journal that I use to uh, meditate on Scripture in the mornings. And on my current journal, I have written these words. Left to myself, I am a plague. Clinging to Christ, I am a vessel. Left to myself, I am a plague. Clinging to Christ, I am a vessel. Listen, there is a world of potential danger in me. There is a world of potential benefit in me. If, if I let my heart drift where my flesh and the world and the devil wants it to go, I am not the only one who will be affected. I mean, the damage just, it just cannot be confined to my own life. I mean, my spiritual malaise will become a plague that influences my wife, my children, my friends, my brothers and sisters around me. Why is that? Because the church is an organism and God has created it in such a way that it grows when every part is working properly. And so when any one part is not working properly, when any one part strays, there is an inevitable negative effect on the whole. My unfaithfulness to the Lord is unfaithfulness to others. That's a sub-point in your notes. My unfaithfulness to the Lord is unfaithfulness to others. I am hurting you. You are hurting me when we turn away from the Lord in this area, that area of our lives. And listen, if, if, if you're a me- member of Providence Bible Fellowship, Bible Fellowship, you should have thought in these terms because we have made a covenant with one another. That is, we, we've made a solemn promise to one another that we will live in certain ways. We're going to have a membership meeting this afternoon and we will reiterate that promise to one another all over again. Where we, we promise to one another to do certain things. Among those things are, we're going to give ourselves devotionally to the Lord. And we are going to avoid sin and addiction. And this is not just because we're legalists. We, we do this because we know that no one of us can be sick without infecting the others. When I, when I stray, I put the rest in harm's way. Verse 12 indicates how dangerous this is. Verse 12. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendant of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. Why? Why cut them off? Because of the terrible influence on the congregation. And this is, this is a refrain over and over in the scriptures regarding this issue of of intermarriage, which is just emblematic of bringing idolatry into the camp. Don't do it. If you bring that in, those foreign spouses, they're, they're going to lead you away to, fo- to follow their false gods. You can't have anything to do with them. Offer no quarter. Cut them off, lest they lead the whole people astray. You, you cannot mix false worship with truth. There's no such thing as partial commitment. When you tolerate idolatry in your home, you put the whole body at risk. This is such a a serious phenomenon that one of the reasons, it is one of the reasons that God has commanded church discipline in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks about removing the old leaven. Just a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough, that, that ungodly influence. It spreads to others, and so it cannot be allowed to permeate unabated. And so Paul closes that chapter saying, purge the evil person from among you. You, you have to do this. Now that, that's one side of this. I, I, am, I am a great potential danger to the congregation when I'm unfaithful. The other side of this is a glorious thing to think about and it's something that we should all just give ourselves to. When I am wholly His, when I'm wholly His, then by His grace and strength, I then become a boon to the joy and faith and love of those around me. 
And what, what a wonderful thing. When my heart is completely His, my mind is set completely on Him, my affections are His, then just like with the other, that can't be contained to just me. Can't confine it. That's going to spread. Isn't that wonderful? God's designed it to be that way. When I love Jesus above all things, I will talk about Him. I'm going to get in your life with Him. I'm going to push Jesus on you. It's good. That's what God has designed it to be. The faithfulness to the Lord is faithfulness to one another. Now, intermarriage is just one way that the people were showing faithlessness. Look at verse 13. We find something else. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does He not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. See, the people were not only engaging in mixed marriages, but they were also divorcing their Jewish spouses. And, and many commentators believe that they were doing, the, doing both. They were, they were divorcing their Jewish wives so that they could marry pagan wives. And God found this terribly offensive because He created those unions. Look at verse 15. Did not He make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. God joined those marriages. He joined them for His own purpose. That's true of every marriage going back to creation. And to that truth, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Malachi indicates here that the marriage belongs to God. God created these marriages to get something out of them. Something for His glory. Likewise, the New Testament teaches that marriage... Marriage is not simply a a man-made instrument for organizing society, and it's not the most pragmatic way to raise families. It is God's institution. It belongs to Him, and He has designed it, among other reasons, for the purpose of bringing Himself glory as we emulate the love of Christ for the church. Marriage Marriage is, as God designed it, and marriage as He has called us to it, It is the perfect instrument for depicting the faithfulness and steadfast love of God to the world. It's tremendous. And marriage is so prominent here in this prophet because these people were so lax about it. They thought so little of God. They believed they could please Him with these burnt offerings while defaming Him and His character in the form of lives lived in absolute opposition to His covenant faithfulness. We do the same thing when we, when we abandon our marriages or neglect our marriages. When two people end their marriage or give up on it, they demonstrate something about Christ and the church that absolutely is not true. Now, just a little aside here. I'm, I, I do not this morning want to condemn every person present who has had a divorce. First of all, in, in, in my view, there are biblical allowances for divorce. But secondly, even in cases where people have had an unbiblical divorce, there's forgiveness and redemption. And so, if you have repented of that and sought the Lord's forgiveness then I would encourage you this morning to praise Him with great joy for His kindness to you and for the fact that we serve a God who makes all things new. Is that good news? It's fantastic news. So, not not here to condemn divorcees. Rather, I, I would appeal to the still married who are tempted to either leave their marriages or leave their marriages in a shambles. As I've already mentioned, God has designed marriage to be a picture of the gospel. He commands us specifically to engage in Christ-like, selfless, sacrificial love 
towards our husbands and wives. He commands us to give the kind of love that we all promise to give in our wedding vows. You remember your wedding vows? We actually promise to give that kind of love. It's easy, it's easy to forget, right? Uh, that's the kind of love that honors God. A marriage in which we actually strive to love the way that God has called us to love and the way that we promised that we would love. Now, a divorce is, is a much more obvious way to dishonor the Lord than to have a marriage where you have Christ-like, um, no, no Christ-like love. <coughs> and so, many people will avoid, avoid the stigma of divorce in order to, to avoid other people's displeasure, looking down on them, but they'll stay in that marriage devoid of Christ-like love and make the mistake of thinking that by doing that, they have honored the Lord. Now, it is good to avoid divorce. I'm going to be very clear about that. It is good to avoid divorce. But God wants more. God, God is, that, that's not what God is shooting for. He wants us to pour ourselves out for our spouses, as does Christ. And my great concern is that many currently in bad marriages are content to let the marriages stay bad. And people who have arrived in that place, they typically get there by a trajectory that looks something like this. <coughs> we enter marriage viewing it as a vehicle for self-fulfillment rather than self-sacrifice. In other words, we adopt the ideas of the culture. Marriage is about self-fulfillment, not self-sacrifice. That's how we enter marriage, in spite of what we say in our wedding vows. And so we then quickly become disappointed with our spouse, just very quickly. And unlike that selfless love that Christ has given us and to which he has called us, <clears throat> we then engage in a series of attempts to move one another to love us perfectly. Eventually, we begin to withhold from one another altogether in some kind of marital game of chicken. Eventually, it moves beyond that need-meeting stalemate and the prospect of serving or being served. It just dies completely. We come to the place where we just exist in the same home. And bitterness takes over to the extent that we're not even open to anything that would look like a biblical reconciliation or Christ-like love and giving. Because in our minds, <clears throat> my spouse is the way my spouse is. He or she is never going to change. There's no use in trying. But to honor God, I'm not going to divorce them. Praise God you're not divorcing. Praise God you're not divorcing. But don't fool yourself. You're not honoring the Lord. A legally intact but completely self-focused marriage says nothing but untrue things about Jesus Christ. And people who settle for that, they are much like these people of Judah, leaving one spouse to marry a pagan and still bringing their offerings to God as if he's going to be pleased by it. He's not pleased. And if you are in that place this morning, I would, I would lovingly and gently say to you that the Lord says, you're faithless. You are faithless to your spouse. You may still be married, but you're faithless. When you and your spouse made your vows, you did not vow to squeeze your hopes and dreams out of that person. You did not vow to coax need meeting out of them. What you did vow was to pour yourself out no matter what. No matter what. Christ-like love. Oh, man, I'm so glad that Christ loves us better than we love each other. I mean, Christ-like love is unconditional. And He gives it no matter what comes in return. Because that's the kind of God He is. God makes promises and He keeps them at great personal cost. God makes promises and He keeps them at great personal cost. Now listen to this. Those who worship Him in truth... They image Him by doing the same thing. They make promises 
and they keep them at great personal cost. If you're in a bad marriage, I'm not about to suggest that that's easy. It's not. but, But if you want to honor the Lord, here's how. Don't merely remain married. Go beyond that to obedience. Pour yourself out for your spouse, no matter what you receive in return, and do that as an act of worship to the Lord. That's pleasing to the Lord. Listen, your your faithlessness to your spouse, whether that's in the form of adultery or divorce or tolerating a loveless marriage, God regards that as faithlessness to Him. That's the next sub-point in your notes. Faithlessness to others is faithlessness to God. Remember, God is a covenant-keeping God. He joins us to Himself. He joins us to others. So when we're faithless to one another, we're disregarding our obligation to Him to walk in faithfulness as He does. It doesn't matter what other people do. Other people aren't the standard. He's our standard. We're imaging Him. These people in Malachi, they're incredulous. They're weeping that God wouldn't receive their offerings. And they're, they're saying, why? why? Why wouldn't God receive our offerings? And he says to them, look, it's because, because I was a witness to this marriage. I put it together and you're dishonoring me by being unfaithful to it. Now, there's, there's, there's been much said this morning that, that might convict us, right? Let me, let me give you some really good news. The promise of the gospel is that in Christ is the power to do what he calls us to do. I want to say that again. The promise of the gospel is that in Christ is the power to do what he calls us to do. So if we think about Ephesians chapter 5, where we find some things that some of us might think of as completely unreasonable, like wives, submit to your husbands as the church does to Christ, and husbands, love your wives as, as Christ does the church. Ephesians 5, that can be traced back to Ephesians 2. Let me give you some great nuggets from Ephesians 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You couldn't walk in obedience. As a result, you were under the wrath of God. But God, because of His great mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, He made us alive together with Christ. And there are ramifications of that. There are ramifications of that. That by grace, through faith, salvation, means not just that we are no longer children of wrath, we're new creations. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which He created beforehand, so that we would walk in them. Now, that means you can walk in faithfulness in your relationships. You can. That's the, that, that is the, the, the line of logic in the book of Ephesians. You have been saved, and so live this way. You can. You can be faithful to your spouse. You can pour yourself out because you have been raised up with Christ. You're a new creation. You've been created in Him for good works. You are His workmanship. But it's not effortless. It's not effortless. And the New Testament never tells us that it is. So what should we do? What should we do? Well, Malachi would would give to us this final Peace. Those who worship God must guard themselves. Those who worship God must guard themselves. Verse 15. So guard yourselves and your spirit, and let none of you be faithful to the wa- faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So, guard yourselves in your spirit and do not be faithless. Now, I don't know how close you're paying attention there, but twice in two verses he says the same thing. Guard yourselves in your spirit. Do not be faithless. Guard yourselves in the spirit. 
do not be faithless. We find the same kind of thing in other places in scriptures. In the scriptures, Proverbs four twenty three, keep your heart with all, all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Keep a close watch on your life and doctrine. Keep a close watch on yourself, believer. Keep a close watch on yourself. Keep a close watch on your mind, the things that you're thinking about. Keep a close watch on your heart, the things that you love. As an aspect of your worship of God, keep a close watch on yourself and be faithful in your relationships. Don't be, don't be faithless to your spouse. Don't leave your spouse either literally or emotionally. If you do, you've covered your, your garments with violence. And what does that mean? Well, the first part of verse 16 is notoriously difficult to translate, which is why we have a variety of translations of, of that verse. And I'm not going to propose something that I think would be better. I think they're, they're, all, they're all good. It's just difficult to, to render. I'll, I'll just say that, that, that what seems to be clear in the first part of verse 16 is that the Lord is expressing two things. His disdain for divorce and He's comparing it to an act of violence. He hates divorce. He compares it to an act of violence. And he he gives us those two things to put some thrust behind this imperative to guard oneself. It is a serious affront to God for us to be faithless to our spouses. Now, what would it look like for us to guard ourselves? Given the very little time that we have here, uh, I, I can only give you a couple of ideas. I would encourage you, though, to grab a brother or sister in the Lord here and have a conversation about this. After the baptism service, we're going to have a potluck downstairs. It would be a great forum for talking about this. What would it look like to guard ourselves in this respect? To talk to one another about this, throw out some ideas. I want to give you three just to prime the pump a little bit, Okay. First of all, evaluation. Evaluation. Asking myself questions. Where am I in relation to these things that Malachi has brought up? Have I, have I settled into a place where I'm comfortable being unfaithful to the Lord in spite of how it's affecting my brothers and sisters in Christ? Have I settled into a place where I am comfortable just existing with my my spouse at some kind of cold war, not pouring myself out for my spouse? Am I under the self-deception that I can be faithful to the Lord and faithless in my relationships? Just asking questions. Evaluation. Second, precaution. Evaluation, then precaution. It would be wise to take the precaution of telling another brother, Sister in Christ, if you're a man, tell a brother. If you're a woman, tell a sister. Just tell them, look, here's what I'm seeing in myself as it pertains to this text. Would you come alongside me and walk through this with me? Let's talk about these things and perhaps occasionally we can ask each other questions. Maybe we can read the Scriptures together. We can read another book together. Evaluation, precaution. Third, you may need rescue. Rescue. In that evaluation, you may find that you've got a, a four-alarm fire going on. And you need serious help, uh, perhaps in the form of, of counseling. We offer counseling here at Providence. All you have to do is ask for it. Malachi wants us to take away with us this morning that God is a covenant-keeping God. That is, He, he is faithful. He's faithful in all of His relationships. We are all beneficiaries of it. If we would worship Him rightly, if we would honor Him with our lives, we must image that same thing in our relationships. We cannot honor Him. We are not honoring Him if our lives are characterized by covenant breaking and faithlessness. In the church, we can't live as if faithlessness to one another is okay. In our marriages, we can't live as if faithlessness to one another is okay. Faithfulness to God requires faithfulness to one another. I'm going to to pray and then we're going to spend a a moment in brief silence reflecting on these things before a final song. Let's pray.
Father, we praise You as our covenant-keeping God and Father. Given all eternity, we could never fill up that statement with a proper recognition of all that You are and all that You have done to make us Yours. And so this morning we we say simply, we, we praise You for these things and we thank You for the Lord Jesus sacrifice that you made through him to bring us to yourself. We thank you for that relationship. We thank you that you are a God of relationships and that out of love you have allowed us to know you as Father. Please help us to rediscover this glorious truth every day. And today in particular, Father, help us to consider that proper worship of you requires us to image this part of your character. Your relational God who is faithful in all his relationships. Would you, would you do this in us, Father? Help us to see that being faithful to you requires us to be faithful to one another. And help us to find joy in it. Joy in imaging you to the creation by loving one another well, being faithful to one another. Or there are people in the room who are engaging in idolatry, thinking only of themselves. I pray, Father, that you would grant them to be convicted of this, bring them to repentance, help them to think of how they are hurting not only themselves and, and your name, but also the others in this congregation. Father, we may have marriages represented here that are in serious trouble. We pray, Father, that you would help us to believe the gospel. That you have saved us unto good works that you have prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. You have given us the power to do the right thing as it pertains to our marriage. Help us to believe these things. Give us the desire to do them out of love for you. Lord, we do believe the gospel. We, we pray that you would help us to believe it all the more. That your Holy Spirit would take these things and, and bury them deeply into our minds and hearts. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.